Thank you very much, Wilma, and thank you uh, very much, everyone, for coming. Um, I hope you're not just sheltering from the rain, but we'll, we'll try and make it uh, a good experience as well. So today, I'd like to highlight some of the ideas behind the Romance of the Middle Ages exhibition by looking at them from a particular angle, and that's uh, of giving, exchanges, and the role of storytelling itself as a form of gift. Medieval romance uh, is a genre of writing that's notoriously difficult to define. At its essence is the tradition of storytelling in the vernacular that flourished in Europe between about the 12th century um, and the 16th, and that forms the basis for many later kinds of writing, um, including the novel. Uh, telling a story en romance uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, in medieval French, simply meant to speak in your own vernacular rather than, say, in Latin. And the romances that survive in English uh, are very often adapted from versions in French, for example. Romances often wrap themselves around the shape of a protagonist's life, perhaps a young hero or the intertwined lives of two lovers, focusing on the crucial moments of testing, division and return that mark uh, those protagonists' relationship with the family or the community uh, through which they forge their identity. Romances also celebrate both the pleasure and the power, sometimes the danger, of storytelling itself. And the central figures of the best-known romances were known throughout Europe, figures like Lancelot and Guinevere, Tristan and Isolde, King Arthur, Alexander the Great, and Roland. But also, there were many who were well-known then, but are perhaps less familiar to us now, uh, such as Guy of Warwick, uh, and Bevis of Hampton, or Southampton, and King Horn. Perhaps the most famous account of uh, the power and also the danger of romance reading invokes the story of Lancelot and Guinevere in an episode itself framed as a captivating love story. And this is the first extract that I've put on your handout here. So in Canto V um, of the Inferno, from Dante's great early 14th century uh, poem, The Divine Comedy. Dante's alter ego in his vision and his guide, the Roman poet Virgil, uh, meet Francesca di Rimini, whose doomed affair with her husband's brother Paolo has condemned them to drift in the second circle of hell. And in conversation, Francesca relates how reading about Lancelot and Guinevere sealed her own fate. Um, and this is the first extract. Um, so she says, um, Per più fiate gli occhi ci sospense che la lettura è scoloroci il viso, and so on. I'll, um, I'll spare you my Italian uh, and start reading in translation. Several times, that reading, the reading about Lancelot, urged our eyes to meet and drained the colour from our faces. But one moment alone overcame us. When we read how the longed-for smile was kissed by so great a lover. This one, who shall never be parted from me, kissed my mouth all trembling. A gallo, uh, a go-between, was the book and he who wrote it. That day we read no further in it. In this extraordinary scene, the romance of Lancelot itself becomes a catalyst uh, for these uh, lovers to kiss. The book actively urges their eyes and mouths to respond to its own erotic power. 
The exhibition that's going on uh, in the exhibition room, just, just across the quadrangle at the moment, the exhibition displays a number of items that contain some of this potential for shared, sometimes secret, meanings in romance. For example, probably the smallest item in the room is a little gold ring dating from around about 1400. It's set with a pair of jewels, a sapphire and a garnet, which probably represent a loving couple. Around the inside of the ring, a message has been carved, du tout mon cœur, with all my heart, a private message that would have been worn next to the skin. Not only this, but underneath the stones, again on the inside of the ring, uh, in, in its bezel, there's a little compartment uh, with a sliding lid that can be opened to store a token, perhaps a strand of hair or a fragment of cloth. This ring is itself a medieval romance, with all the drama, pledging of loyalty and meaningful messages of a much longer narrative. It's also refreshing, I think, that amidst the renewed scholarly effort to understand medieval literature, to think about it uh, in relation to its cultural and literary contexts, to edit and annotate its manuscripts, we shall almost certainly never know the circumstances of the ring's making and giving probably a token between lovers um, sometime in the early 15th century. Romances themselves are punctuated by gifts exchanged, promises pledged, and the return with interest of an object or a person that's been in circulation uh, for most of the narrative. And in an engaging book that thinks through some of the huge amount of discussion about gifts and gift-giving in the field of anthropology... Um, Lewis Hyde um, has written a little bit about this, and this is number two on your handout, from a book by Hyde, which is simply called The Gift. You may keep your Christmas present, but it ceases to be a gift in the true sense, unless you have given something else away. As it is passed along, the gift may be given back to the original donor, but this is not essential. In fact, it is better if the gift is not returned but is given instead to some new uh, third party. The only essential is this, is this, the gift must always move. There are other forms of property that stand still, that mark a boundary or resist momentum, but the gift keeps going. And I think, thinking about that uh, passage... Um, I'd also like us to imagine that we were to replace the word gift with narrative in that paragraph and see what effect that might have on our own reading um, of stories, not only from the Middle Ages, but from elsewhere as well. So for the rest of our time today, I'm going to talk about three medieval romances uh, which are displayed in the exhibition and that work with these ideas in different ways. My first example uh, is the romance of Horn which, uh, if you came to Dr. Laura Ashley's talk a couple of weeks ago, you'll have heard her speak about as well. It was composed in the dialect of French spoken in Britain, uh, what we call Anglo-Norman, or something we now call the French of England, in around about 1170. Its bold, virtuosic narrative is replete with the luxury objects of Norman aristocratic culture. Fine fabrics, delicate food, powerful horses and hunting birds. At the start of the romance, the hero, called Horn, is discovered in a garden somewhere in southwest Britain uh, by marauding Saracens uh, from Africa. 
And one thing we realise when we redirect medical romances is they aren't very hot on geographical or historical plausibility. <laughs> so the very start of the, of the romance is number three here on the handout. Seigneur, oyez à peine les verses de parchemin, comme libres à l'ouf, à peine nous à sa fin. Messre Thomas ne vaut qui s'est mis à déclin, qui ne dit de haut, le vaillant orphelin. So you will have heard, my, my lords, from the verses in the parchment, how the noble Alof came to his end. Master Thomas does not want to end his own life without telling the story of Horn, um, Alof's son, fatherless and brave, and his fate at the hands of the wicked Saracens. One of them, a scoundrel descended from Cain, was called Malbroin in the, in, in the African language. He was the first to find Horn hidden in a garden with 15 other boys of his race. All good Count's sons, they acknowledged the young Horn as their lord. Each wore a crimson or blue tunic, while Horn was clad in Alexandrian brocade. His eyes were clear and bright, his face rosy, his bearing noble. He looked like an angel. Like the day star rising in the morning, Horn shone brighter than his nearest companions. The boy surpassed all his friends uh, in splendour. And the text goes on to describe their fate uh, at the hands uh, of these invaders. Malbroin found the children in their refuge, where all fifteen had hidden themselves from fear. He took them all and bound them, but did no harm to Horn, as fate intended. Out of his great good kindness, God gave Horn this good fortune, that all seeing him would at once pity and have mercy on him. So in this opening uh, narrative, in direct opposition to the diabolical figure of Malbroin, Horn is quickly described as like an angel, or like the day star rising. He's also a figure of immediate and notable value in the text. His eyes bright and clear, his face rosy, clad in costly garments, with which he mingles, shining brighter than all the others. Wrapped up in this physical value um, is the um, Eru, the, the, literally the possession um, in Judy Weiss's translation, um, the published translation, she says, good fortune from God. In conversation, she told me that she might now translate that as the word gift. Um, something given to him by God that anyone looking at him will have mercy on him. So Horn and his fellow boys are cast out to sea in a boat, rather than being put to death. Uh, and with God protecting them, they're washed up on the shore of Brittany. They are compared to, or nearly treated as commodities, to be sold as slaves. But in fact, their value as gifts is realised by the good steward, uh, Herland. And he offers them to King Hunlap. And I've given a couple of other extracts just underneath here um, from that passage. So the boys are shipwrecked on the Brittany shore. By God, my Lord Herder, said the knights, this is very fine wreckage, much to be prized. We can certainly present them to the king with honour. Later on they debate whether the boys should be sold as slaves or kept. Um, and Herder says to the king, when you know who they are, take counsel on what it will please you to do, whether you want to bring them up or sell them and profit by it. Henceforth they are yours. Do what you want with them. So King Hunlach, at this moment, himself has the dilemma of whether to sell the boys as slaves or nurture their value and pass it on. And at this point, he asks Horn about his origins. Horn then tells the king the story of his own lineage and his history, 
And this act of storytelling reveals to the king the true value of Horn. He and we can now place him in an ongoing set of exchanges involving family, revenge, uh, religious conflict. Horn here acts as a kind of gift to the narrative, charged with an energy that seeks a return to his own origins, what we might call the payback of the story. Horn will eventually achieve this payback by regaining his kingdom and clearing out the pagan invaders. But before that, um, and for about 100 pages of the translation, uh, all sorts of things happen to him first. And he becomes entangled in another sort of exchange. Having grown into a fine young man under the care of the steward, Herland, the king's daughter, Rigmel, falls in love with Horn without even seeing him. Early version of celebrity culture, really. <laughs> she proffers all the fine gifts she can think of to persuade her that to bring Horn to her so that she can have a look at him in person. And eventually he does. The young couple pledge themselves to one another, and after a while, after a, uh, a due uh, amount of, uh, of um, proving himself in battle, Horn accepts a ring uh, from Rigmal. But this would not be a romance if there weren't many twists and turns to come. Horn is exiled to Ireland and eventually returns to reclaim Rigmel just in the nick of time as she's about to be married off to another man. <coughs> Arriving at her wedding feast in disguise, he uses the symbolic object of ring and horn to alert her to his presence. He asks Rigmel for a drink. The custom is that the, the bride goes around the hall offering drinks to the guests. Uh, and he uses this as an, as an excuse to talk to her. He asks her for a drink, but twice refuses to use the fine goblets that she offers him, in preference for a drinking horn. And this is the next passage at the bottom of the page here. She asks him about this. She says, now tell me, my fair friend, if you don't want to drink, why ask for it? I brought it to you twice, and you wouldn't taste it. As far as I can see, you have a proud heart. Then Horn replied thus, he could hide no longer. Lovely lady, know for certain, once men used to bring me richer cups, but horn is the English word for what you took round just now. If you, for love of him I'm just named, i.e. horn, will offer me the horn full of wine that I saw you give to your lover just now, I will share this drink with you. She felt such grief at heart she almost fainted. When she recovered, she stopped and reflected. She thought he might be a messenger from Horn. She did not dare to recognise that it was he himself. Horn then drops the ring, the gift that she gave him, into the drinking horn, has a drink and passes it back to her. And when she drinks from it, the ring bumps into her lip. She recognises it and her lover at the same time. So here, the identity of the protagonists gift objects and the narrative itself, the story of their lives, have mingled so that it's impossible to disentangle them. My second example um, is from an English romance composed probably in the middle of the 14th century um, called Eglamour of Artois. And this poem uh, isn't much known now, but survives in several manuscripts and early printed editions and would probably be, uh, have been familiar to readers of Shakespeare's generation, for example. In fact, a minor character in one of Shakespeare's first plays, The Two Gentlemen of Verona, is called the Fair Sir Eglamour. 
In the Middle English story, Eglamour is in love with Christabel. Her jealous father sets him a few seemingly impossible tasks before he'll grant Eglamour his daughter's hand. And women are often the subject uh, of exchange between men in these stories. Christabel gives Eglamour some gifts to help him on his way, including a magic ring and some magnificent hunting dogs. His tasks include fighting a monstrous boar that has been eating anyone unfortunate enough to encounter him. Eglamour kills the boar, but later has to fight a giant who kept the beast as a pet, and touchingly laments the death of what he calls me little spotted hoggling, uh, my little freckly piglet. Um, the Bodleian's manuscript of Eglamour of Artois is on display uh, in, in the exhibition, and it's open at a page illustrating uh, the battle uh, between Eglamour and this boar, uh, so you can make up your own minds uh, about it. Between all these um, tiresome encounters with giants, boars and dragons, Eglamour and Christabel go to bed and conceive a child. When Eglamour is away, the pregnancy is discovered and Christabel is cast out to sea with her newborn son. And the sea is a dangerous but also a busy place in many romance. Christabel's child uh, is snatched away by Griffin and taken to Israel, uh, where he's discovered by the local king. And uh, there's a passage here, uh, number four on the handout, which describes the scene. Uh, the, the king lives hunting at Tida, home with the chilled Gonhirida, that from the grip from the griffin was hent. Dama, he said unto the queen, Mikkel of Solas have he said, this chilled god has me sent. The child called Degrabel, like Horn earlier, is treated as a sort of gift from God and brought up as a prince. The rich cloak he's wrapped in and his unusual method of travel make him the sort of meaningful, circulating object that Lewis Hyde was describing as being characteristic of a gift, not a commodity, and which we see in the exhibition's inscribed ring. At about the age of 15, Degrabel goes to Egypt to compete in a tournament and the prize uh, is the hand of a beautiful woman in marriage. Unbeknownst to him, this woman is his own mother, who was washed ashore there. He wins the tournament and marries his mother. Uh, but <laughs> this isn't Oedipus. And at the wedding, Christabel sees uh, Degrabel's uh, coat of arms, which includes a griffin and a child. And she remembers her own son. And this is the next little passage here. Uh, Thus graciously has he sped, his own mother has he wed, as he heard a clerk tell. His armies they bear him before him, she thinks how her child was away was born, therefore sorrow she had. Such great, such great, such, uh, she great, therefore she wept, and sorrow gan marker. And all was for her son as Saka, a great swooning she made, she marred What know, said he, me lad of Claire? What makes thou so simple cheer? Methinks thou art not gladder. Lord, in thine armies a foul he see, that some team raft a chill from me, a knicht dare him bogter. In a scarlet mantle was he wounded, and with a gold girdle bonded, that full richly was rafter. The king swear, be Christus micht, in the forest when he licked, a grip to launder him brochter. So, through this uh, recognition of the, uh, of the armorial bearings that he carries with him, the changed coat of arms that is his own story, his own narrative, um, Christopher recognises her own son, and a catastrophe um, is averted. In a new tournament, 
An older knight, Eglamour himself, is victorious and wins Christabel. He also carries with him a significant coat of arms, and this is the next little passage on the handout there. For Christabel was dawn in the sea, new armies bear he. Listen, and you'll, you'll say Cipri. He bowed a ship in armies of gold, and a laddie droning as she shot a shield liant here be. Um, a lady, as if she was going to be drowned, and a child next to her. The child was but a nicht old, and then back to the ship. His mast was of silver and gold in every point to the ear. Of red gold was his fana, his sails and his ropes ilkana was portrayed very. <coughs> Both Christabel and um, her son are finally reunited with Egmore. And it's through the meaningful coats of arms, the narratives, if you like, that they carry with them on objects and that they pass between themselves um, that the family come together. They themselves are like gifts whose journeys have accrued obligations, debts and histories that pay us back in the pleasure of their homecoming. The third text that I'd like to talk about is Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And that's probably... Of all romances, a romance that you may well be familiar with. And we're very lucky that the British Library um, has allowed us to borrow the only surviving uh, medieval manuscripts of this text, one of the greatest narrative poems in English. And it's on display in the exhibition, alongside C.S. Lewis's heavily annotated copy of an edition of the poem um, by his friend and colleague uh, J.R.R. Tolkien uh, and E.B. Gordon, another medieval scholar. And you can see Lewis's very, very neat and small little notes uh, written in uh, at the bottom and along the margin of the page. I like to imagine him sitting there on a sofa in his teaching room in Maudin or something, just keeping the notes hidden and testing his students on the vocabulary as a PU at all by heart. Um, so Gallery of the Green Knight is all about giving, taking, exchanging, setting out and returning. It's also about the quality of chivalric, ethical and religious values. Are they negotiable, flexible, or are they fixed and stable? Early in the poem, as uh, New Year's celebrations, games and gift-giving are in full swing, King Arthur presides over a magnificent feast. But he has a particular habit, the poet tells us. He won't eat on such occasions until he hears an adventure story um, or a challenge. And this is the next little passage um, on the handout here. And I saw another manner mere the Demeca, that he thought nobly had known he would never enter upon such a dare a day, ere him devised were of some adventurous thing, an uncouth tale of some mind mervail, that he make trouble, of elders, of armies, of other aventures, but other some sedge him besought of some sicker knifter to join with him in justice. In Jupardy to lie near the leaf for leaf, live each on other as fortune would force them, the fairer to have And this morning, as I was finalising the, the handout, I reached for my uh, translation of Going and the Green Knight, recently one by Simon Armitage. I realised that it's actually in the exhibition. Um, so I've, I've just gone and bought another copy uh, from the Bodleian shop, and I'll read out for you a translation of that, of that passage. And the matter which played on his mind at that moment was his pledge to take no portion from his plate on such a special day until a story was told, some far-fetched yarn or outrageous fable, the tallest of tales, 
yet one ringing with truth, like the action-packed epics of Men at Arms. Or, till some character had challenged his chosen knight, dared him with a lance to lay life on the line, to stare death face to face and accept defeat, should fortune or fate smile more favourably on his foe. As if summoned by this Arthurian yearning for adventure and narrative, in fact, into the hall rides a huge knight, exquisitely dressed, his small waist and powerful bearing, demanding the admiration both of men and of women. In one hand, he holds a threatening axe, in the other, a festive holly branch. The, the courtiers stare at him in amazement, because the knight and his horse are totally green. As you remember, Sir Gawain takes up the challenge of the green knight's Christmas game, and he beheads the visitor. And the poet imagines uh, red blood gushing out of the green neck stump. But instead of collapsing and dying, the green knight gets to his feet and retrieves his severed head from the feet of the, the, the courtiers who played a little bit of football to try and avoid it. Um, he holds it aloft so that the head gets a good view uh, of everyone. And the head speaks, reminding Gawain of his promise to find the green knight in a year's time and receive his own payback. So the game is also a form of gift exchange, but the gifts given are actually blows of an axe. <clears throat> the following Christmas, on his quest to find the Green Knight, Gawain stays with a very hospitable Sir Bertilac, and his even more accommodating wife, whose attentions Gawain is at pains to resist without appearing impolite. And the two men make a pact that they will exchange whatever each, whatever each of them wins during the day. Bertilac goes out hunting, and Gawain stays at home uh, and has various encounters with uh, Bertilac's wife. And in the exhibition, we've opened the manuscripts uh, actually at the end of the text of the poem, but showing an illustration from earlier on in the narrative, um, a scene where Lady Bertilac is leaning um, provocatively over Gawain in his curtained bed while he lies there pretending to be asleep. And I've quoted for you on the handout one of the exchanges between Bertilac and Gawain. And this is the second time um, that his host comes back from a hard day's hunting, with a huge boar's head as a trophy. No, Gawain, quoth the Gordmon, this Gorman is your own, the fiend forward of the vast faithful Yiknawa. It is sooth, quoth the Sedger, and sicker true, I'll me get he shall yaw gift again, be me troth. He held the haffle of all the halas, and hendly him kisses. And after soreness of the psalm, he seraphed him there. No, we are even, quoth the Hathel, in this even teeter, of all the covenants that we knit, so then he come hither below. The Lord said, Be Saint Jeeva, ye are the best that he knaw, ye been rich in a wheeler, such chapter, and ye draw. And again, Simon Armitage's Simon version of that. Now, Gawain, said the Lord, I'll give you this game as I wager warranted, as well you remember. Certainly, said Sir Gawain, it shall be so. And graciously, I shall give you my games in exchange. He catches him by the neck and courteously kisses him. Then a second time kisses him in a similar style. Now we're even, said Gawain, at this evening's end. The clauses of our contract have been kept and you have what I owe. By St. Giles, the just lord says, this night's the best I know. 
By wagering this way, his gains will grow and grow. Bertillac teases Gawain with the disparity between his prize scalp and the two kisses that Gawain has won during the day. In language rich with the vocabulary, both of commercial agreements and of gift exchange. Each is also acting out the story of their day's work, playing a carefully staged role. Now, I imagine you all know the denouement of the story. Um, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, so cover your ears now, if not, in true Saturday afternoon uh, football result style. Um, the genial host of Bertillac is, of course, also the terrifying Green Knight. Gawain has mostly succeeded on his quest, but by accepting and hiding the gift of a belt, uh, or girdle from Bertillac's wife, in the hope that it will magically protect him, he's not quite lived up to his reputation for perfect honour. And the small cut in the neck that he receives from the Green Knight's axe, along with the girdle that he'll now wear to remind him of his frailty, they both act like the changed coats of arms in Egmore, to turn Gawain himself into an object that tells a story. The poet leaves the debate open. Has Gawain returned with honour, as Arthur's court thinks, or has he failed? And this debate that the poet sets going is his own challenge, his own gift to the audience of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. There's much more that we could say about the interaction between books themselves as costly gift objects in the Middle Ages and the kinds of exchange uh, that storytelling fosters within their covers. Um, but time is also a precious commodity in short supply. So I'd just like to leave you with the image of Gawain, an older and a wiser man, setting off back to Camelot to give his own account of his, of his experiences back um, to the court of King Arthur. Thank you very much. Thank you.